Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Atlantic senior editor Janisha Watts writes in her October cover story called Janisha from Kentucky, I've spent my whole life trying to belong, to show people that I'm not like them, not a black person living in poverty, not a black person with an addiction. When Watts began her career in journalism, she hid the details of her childhood. But now, for the first time, she's telling her story. And we'll talk with Watts about what it means to share the trauma we're so used to hiding. Have you tried to hide parts of your life story? Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Janisha Watts moved to New York to take a temp job at Essence Magazine, she was sure of one thing. No one could ever know her past. A past of growing up in a crack house that was regularly raided by police, of having a mother addicted to drugs, of being separated from her siblings who were taken by the state. But she tells the story of her past now, in the October issue of The Atlantic. Though she wrestled with it, was it a betrayal to speak so honestly about my family, she writes? Was I pimping my trauma? Janisha Watts is senior editor at The Atlantic. But before that, she was Janisha from Kentucky, and she joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Janisha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. Your your piece came out I, less than a week ago, I think, on the 13th, and I was just wondering how you are feeling. What What's that felt like for you? <laughs> yeah. Well, d- definitely over overwhelmed in in, a, in all the good ways and just grateful for people being able to read the essay and being moved by it but I'm more than anything I'm just I'm just super grateful for the opportunity to be able to you know write my story and to, for people to feel moved in some kind of way yeah it was an extremely moving piece and it starts with this story of you meeting Maya Angelou at her Harlem Brownstone <laughs> um, which just sounded incredible. Can you take us there? Yeah, it was. It was a year. It was a yeah. It was a while. Well, yeah, it was when she was alive. Um, my mentor Marie Brown. She surprised me. She told me that um, she was going to take me. We was going to a, a event, and then uh, when I walked into her brownstone in Harlem, I walked over to the. You know she was introducing me to different people and then I just immediately uh spotted my Angelo and I and I just like I was dumbfounded <laughs> <laughs> and, and just I just remember and I, I think I the thing I remember about that moment is I remember how she was just so regal 
Like she was just just sitting so proud, but she was also super inviting. And how um, she also introduced me to her cousin who was sitting next to her. And then of course she wanted to know my name. And I just, I was just standing there, just just giddy, just smiling and just, just I could not believe my eyes. But yeah, that, w- that was that, um, it was like a couple of years ago. And then I also remember uh, meeting Nikki Giovanni, Amara Baraki, uh, Baraka Rudin, he was uh, alive. And just a lot of different literary uh, people that, you know, I would read about or their families. Yeah. And, of course, for all those reasons, that night would be incredibly memorable. (laughs) But you write about it being memorable for another reason. You write, I didn't have to prove myself. It was assumed that everyone here was important. And I was so struck by that line. First, what did it mean to have your status as important assumed at that event? I think I think what it meant is just I felt seen. It was not, uh, you know, that if I was in the room with all these other literary luminaries, like I had to be someone too. So I think for that moment, it was just more of me feeling seen and for people, you know, to recognize that, you know, I was someone and I had a place in this space and that I belong. I think that's, that was pretty much the biggest thing. And I just didn't have, you know, I didn't have to put on a kind of a, a facade. Well, in some ways I did have to put on a facade, but I, it was just more like I belong. I was someone. Because yeah. like, who else would be in that room, you know? Right. You didn't have to prove it. And of course, what becomes so clear in reading your story is that there were so many ways that you did have to, quote, prove mm-hmm. that you were important or, or pretend that you grew up differently than you did. And and when I read about those moments, I just kept thinking to myself, God, that must have been so incredibly stressful and exhausting to have to do so often. I was wondering, Janisha, if you could just talk a little bit about the happy hours for young black professionals that you'd go to, where you write that, you know, the men wore suits and ties and the women all reminded you of Michelle Obama. What were some of the ways that you would engage with them or or avoid talking about or hide your past when you were in conversation with people at those happy hours? I think the first thing I would always do would just stand and listen and smile and just kind of make eye contact with folks, but not and but not do a lot of talking, but just more so listening and and doing a lot of agreeing and just kind of mimicking how they would move in a room, you know. So, for example, I had a friend that uh, at the time she would she would say, excuse me. So so then I would say, excuse me, too, like if I wanted to get someone's attention. But for the most part, it was just me just being quiet or smiling or, you know, trying to um, maybe make a joke, you know, to just try to be funny. But I was always trying to more so blend in, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And just kind of agree. If, if I thought someone was smart or smarter than me, I would basically agree with what their perspective and just like nod and, you know, make them feel like they were like on top of the world. Yeah. And, and if there was something they'd say like, oh, 
they'd complain about their boarding school or something, you'd say, yeah, my private school was, was horrible too. And you'd sort of like <laughs> basically rationalize that to yourself saying like, I did attend a magnet school that, that had uniforms. Yep. And so. I did do that. I am not proud of it, but yeah, I did. Like I just, I think I would just anything that I could make myself feel like I connected to them, I would do. So like, for example, like I said, like if some people would talk about boarding school in my head, I say, oh yeah, I attended uh, magnet school. So yeah, okay, I, I attended some type of boarding school or that it was like, you know, private or I had to pay for my lunch. And I did a lot, I did that a lot. It was, I, I guess I was being um, I, embellishing and hyperbolic in, in a lot of instances. Well, let's talk a little bit about the past that you were trying to avoid talking about, that you were um, trying to hide to some extent. Um, you grew up uh, at the Charlotte Court Housing Project in Lexington. What was that like? You know, when I when I think about it, and, and this is interesting because when you, I guess when you when you in the moment when you live in it, it's not it's not a horror, it's not bad, you know. Right. And I think until I think I think now that I have distance from it, I'm just like, oh gosh, like wow, what really was bad. But I think when I was a child, it was just more of surviving and um, being with my siblings and protecting them, and you know, just watching my mom. But I don't. I, I, it was just more of I think yeah, the biggest thing was surviving and imagining a new life, like something other than what I was currently living. And I think I did that a lot as a child. It was just always just trying to imagine what my life would look like outside of Charlotte Court or outside of Lexington. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's true. When you're in it, you don't think that it's something out of the ordinary per se. But then there were these moments like you describe having um, a pseudo birthday party, I guess. But basically, you Mm -hmm. were able to have a few girls from the neighborhood over at your apartment and you were maybe six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. And then another mother knocks on the front door to take her daughter out. And what did her mother say again? I, she just she, she told him she was like um I told you all you're not allowed over here and it was actually they were actually twins so and an interesting thing about that story I hadn't talked to them since probably like elementary school right and we had a fact checker who I was like oh this is um this is these are the women I don't know I've reached out to them they may may get in contact with you may not again talk but anyway they, they reached back out to the fact checker and they remember that moment and I remember I think it was something along the lines this is not verbatim but they were just like you know Janisha was my friend and it was just really sad but you know they didn't know what to do because I was their friend and I was just like wow like they remember that but no I, yeah I remember um they were a lot older they were maybe a few years older than me but you know it was known in in, in the community that my mom's house was the crack house or where people, you know, would do drugs. And, you know, and my friends, I, they didn't talk about it, but people knew, you know, it was just like whispers about it. Yeah. You write about people getting high in your bathroom or your bedroom mm-hmm. and cops coming frequently to do raids and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes four or five cops at a time walking through your home that must have been so incredibly frightening yeah no it's, I, it sounds frightening but when I yeah. think like 
I think, again, like when I was in a moment, it was just our reality, you know? It was just, okay, they in the house. Uh, like, we weren't terrified. Like, we went, like, I wasn't living in fear. I guess if that makes sense, it may sound kind of weird, but no, I think at the moment it wasn't, it wasn't terrifying. It was just, it was just our reality. It's just what we knew. Um, and I think now, looking back and when I write about it, it, it makes me sad. I mean, it, like even talking to you about it right now, and I'm just like, I'm just like, gee, it, it is, it's sad when you, when you hear it and when you read it. But I think again, when I, as a child, I, it was just my reality. It's just what we lived, you know? Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And also, um, you know, that it was the crack house because that was the way that your mother was able to access free drugs, right? The, if she could allow people to be there and hang out, they would be able to give her what she needed, essentially. They would be able to give her drugs. I, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation as we're coming up on a break. Okay. Wondering, listeners, have you also ever tried to hide your life story or confronted and realized that your life story was very different from the way that you understood it to be? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. And you can give us a call. We're at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. We're talking about what it means to write about and share the experiences, the trauma that uh, we're used to hiding with Janisha Watts, a senior editor for The Atlantic. More after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Atlantic senior editor Janisha Watts began her career in journalism, she hid the details of her childhood, one where her mother used crack cocaine, the police raided her home. As she grew up, she used literature and poetry to escape. And now, for the first time, she's telling her story in the Atlantic's October issue, titled In Print is Janisha from Kentucky, and online as I Never Called Her Mama, My Childhood in a Crack House. 
You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Do Janisha's experiences resonate with you? Have you ever tried to hide your life story? Or what happened when you shared something you were used to hiding? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. What would you like to ask or tell Janisha Watts? So Janisha, tell me about your mother, Trina. You say she was never mean, never screamed or hit you, even defended you when you were bullied by an older boy. I don't know if you want to tell that story. <laughs> yeah, no, she, 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 the thing about my mom, Trina, is that I, I've always known that she loved us, you know, and I think that, you know, with, with, with drugs, I think it just, it just got in the way of her being a good mother or mothering in a way that that she should, you know, like by American standards. But she's uh, she, she's always been supportive, as you can see. Like she's um, been very open to allowing me to tell her story, even if it's painful, even if it makes her look bad. Um, and she's just always wanted, you know, the best for all of her kids, like all all five of us. So think, yeah, I think it answers your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, it does. Your piece I mentioned also ran with the headline, though, I never called her mama. You never called Trina mama, even when you were little. Why not? Well, it's funny because she, she's the one that told us to call her Trina. And, I, and the more I think about it, I think that maybe it was an unconscious thing from her for her, where she was, perhaps didn't feel uh, entitled or feel... Uh, feel good enough to be called mama but I will say my my two brothers Aaron and Kobe they do call her mama but the girls me Ebony and my sister Shay um uh we all call her Trina but she she that's what she told us to call her was Trina like I've, I've never yeah I've never called her mom I never called her mom but it's not it wasn't as a it's not a, as a disrespect thing it's just what she told us to call her and I just always kind of you know just called her mama I mean, called Katrina. Sorry. Yeah, but but one thing that is interesting is that you did try that title out with your with your granny. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you started calling her mama? Well, because she was more like a mom to me. You know, I I I mean, even to this day, she, I look at her more as my mom than Trina. And I think the other thing too, this I don't know if this was in the piece, but. My grandmother, her first, she had a daughter before Trina, and she died. And I think that my grandmother also kind of had, like, a different kind of connection with me because maybe, you know, she lost a daughter. Maybe she, I kind of reminded her of her. But, yeah, like, my whole, yeah, my whole life I've always identified my grandmother more as the mother figure, as the person that, um, that I wanted to make proud uh, that's, you know, that can get me straight. Like, she's the... She's a person who, you know, I'm not, uh, with Trina, I can be, like, open and, you know, I can express how I feel, but not with my grandmother. It's, it's fair, you know, I know when to draw the line. So, so yeah. Yeah. They play different different roles. It It is it is so interesting, your, your grandmother and the role that she played in, in your life, and I want to dig into that a little bit more. But first, we have some calls coming in. Let me go to caller Catherine in San Francisco. Catherine, join us. You're on. Hi, I'm 
I'm just grateful for your story because you have a lot of strength. And um, I just wanted to let you know that I um, was raised in the back of my family's grocery store. And um, on all appearances, customers would come in and they'd say, oh, you got some really great obedient children but in reality there was a lot of abuse going on and I used to cut myself and everything like that in the meat department and there was um anyway I'm just and anyway I got a degree and all that fancy stuff but what stays with you is this internal part and I never wanted to re reveal that and um I just think that it's it takes great courage to reveal that and I think race has a lot to do with my experience because we were considered like a a model minority. I'm I'm Chinese American so what people on the outside saw were like these little obedient kids and we were living in the back of the grocery store and sometimes we had shoes, sometimes we didn't and as I kind of, you know, people think oh yeah well you came came up from all that stuff it's always with you and these customers who would come in they would notice the abuse I think and there was this one nurse um, she was an african-american nurse and she um, just helped my mom and I a lot Mm -hmm. and um, she was um, born and raised in a one of the first African-American established uh, cities in Central California called Allensworth mm-hmm. and um, California. And then she moved to the big, big city of Corcoran, California, which had like 4,000 people. And then as many people would not want to be helped by her because she was an African-American nurse, a lot of people did not want to buy groceries from us because they thought we sold dogs, you know, just mm. weird stuff like that. But at any rate, it's it's these race, gender, a whole bunch of stuff, and you have the courage to reveal what is strong and beautiful about you. Wow. Catherine, wow, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing your story on the air with us as well. That, that took a lot of courage to... Um, you know, I got to say, one of the stories in your piece, Janisha, that, that really took my breath away was actually when you first tried to get your granny's help. This was, I think you were about eight at the time. You and your siblings were were so hungry, you were pouring sort of cranberry from a can onto a piece of bread. And so you went to find her at her job as a nurse at the health department, interesting parallel with the call. Can you talk about that and also what your granny's reaction was to you going to her place of work? Yeah, and, and first I just want to say thank you, uh, Catherine. That was a very, very brave of you for, to share that story. And yeah, so my grandmother, and I guess I want to also to add context with my grandmother. She's not, like, she's a very complicated woman. <laughs> and I think that, you know, yeah. at that moment, and she has a different memory of the event. But I think at that moment when I decided to 
go to the health department to, you know, try to find her. And I think when she decided to come back to my mom, to Trina's house to, I think it was more shame. I think that's why she reacted in the way of like telling me not to come back to her, uh, her job and leaving. And I think it was, yeah, I think I, I know it was, uh, it was a, uh, it was from shame, but I'm also, I give her grace in, in, in believing that, you know, she loved us. I think she just didn't probably know what to do at that moment. And maybe she was just more mad because of, of, of how it looked. And, and what did, did she do? You talk about how she wasn't there when you got to the health department. You left a note with a coworker of hers and then you heard a knock on your door. Yeah. She just she 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 came back or she came to the house or the apartment and she yelled at me for, you know, uh going to her job unannounced and she told me not to not to do that. And, you know, I at first I lied. I said, you know, I didn't go to your job and then my sister was like, "Yes, she did," but she basically told me not to, not to, not to come, and she and she left and and um, slammed the door. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, she didn't ask where Trina was or how long she'd been gone or offer to take us to McDonald's. She just left. Mm-hmm. She just left. I, I'm curious if that experience sort of modeled to some degree hiding for you because your grandmother clearly didn't what was sort of especially with her place of work right like making sure the part of her life that was Trina and all of you Mm. you was not clear right was not Mm. happening yeah that's a that's a that's a great question because I think I think you own to something yeah I think that perhaps that was maybe the seed of of me knowing you know of, I think I've always like even as a kid I've been you know aware of the bad parts of myself and the bad parts of like our situation and the parts that I knew that uh people kind of frowned on so I think yeah I think early on that was probably perhaps me unconsciously being groomed to uh to to hiding I, I think yeah I think I think that's right Well, this listener writes, the way I tried to deal with my trauma was by taking psychology classes and self-educating about my risky behaviors, our poverty level, and why my parents couldn't prevent these traumas. I had to learn how to cope and move on to heal, and it was an exhaustive, extensive journey. Nobody should have to do it that way. We need more community involvement, resources, trust, and opportunities for children in poverty. It's hard to overcome those traumas and easy to look to drugs. We're talking with Janisha Watts about hiding her family history, her childhood, as she tried to rise in the ranks of journalism. She's a senior editor at The Atlantic and wrote a piece for The Atlantic's October issue called Janisha from Kentucky. Online, it's called I Never Called Her Mama, My Childhood in a Crack House. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Have you ever tried to hide your life story? Why? What happened when you shared something you were used to hiding? Do Janisha's experiences resonate with you in some way? You can call us at 866-733-6786. And let me go to caller Chris now. Hi, Chris. Thanks for calling. You're on. Hey. Hello. So uh, I can definitely relate about trying to hide your drama and such. Um, I was the late age adoption, five. I was in terrible foster care, and then I had an abusive adoptive mother. 
And then 10 days after I turned nine, they, <clears throat> she sent me to a mental hospital, an outdoor program. Did have a lockup called Anawake, A-N-N-E-E-W-A-K-E-E. -E and then I remained there till uh, right before I turned 18. Um, by the time I was nine and a half, I was raped, molested. Uh, I, we worked for two years before I actually got to go to school. And um, the guy who molested me turned state witness against the guy who started the place. And the guy who started the place, his lawyer was Roy Barnes, who became the governor of Georgia and pardoned him. The guy who molested me never was prosecuted, worked with children the rest of his life. I never told people that I, you know, grew up in this mental hospital, basically. And, uh, and, and my story was pretty normal to a lot of kids who went there. You know, the place went up in 60 minutes in 89, which wow. usually isn't a good thing. <laughs> but I wrote a book about it. I can't get it published, but it was very cathartic because I was able to get my 1,400 pages of my medical records and read through that, and I have a very acute memory and wrote a book about it. And within a month after writing that book, I finished it two years ago, I stopped biting my nails without even realizing it. Because it was like it was like I was able to just write it all down, and I mean I went through therapy for years, but writing it all down was just so therapeutic for me, and I, I can relate. To, I'm looking forward to reading your story, but um, I mean there's still times where like you know in my head I'm like Jesus man, you know, but um, <laughs> wow. I, I can definitely relate, and and I would never tell people that I went to a mental hospital, and when I did, I'd lose friends over it. And it wasn't until I was comfortable with all the abuse and what I went through and went through therapy that I could just really, yeah, I grew up in a mental hospital. I was raped at nine, you know. But, mm. and, you know, and that may sound casual, but no. it's to a point where I can live with it and it doesn't have a hold of me like it used to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Chris. Um, wow. Yeah. Thank you for calling and sharing that. Sorry, Janisha, you wanted to say something. Oh, no, same. I was going to say thank you, Chris. I'm oh. also really, yeah, sorry, um, moved by just Chris talking about writing it all down mm -hmm. and um, and that being cathartic in some way and he stopped biting his nails and things because you do have this really poignant story about when you first realized um, the power of writing that, that <laughs> you had left your journal journal out um, for your your aunt, I think, at the time to discover. Um, mm hmm what happened when she discovered your writing? I think you were writing about missing your siblings. You were writing about your mom's addiction. She, uh, I, I know she she was reading, she started reading my journal to my grandmother who was in Kentucky. And I, I, it's so funny, I can still see it. Like I can see her just um, sitting in the living room. And this is when we actually had uh, phones and would, that was hanging on the wall. And she was just like whispering into the receiver, like telling her what I wrote. And I knew, you know, I knew exactly what I wrote because I, I wanted them to see it. But I just remember just being, just feeling, just feeling proud that, you know, that she was reading my words and that I was being heard. Like that, that they knew that, you know, that I, that was feeling things and that, that, that I was also hurting and that I also, you know, miss my siblings and miss Trina. Yeah. When you say that, <laughs> I began to see that writing things down, naming them could make other people feel things. Mm -hmm. I think that's so, that's so incredibly 
powerful. Uh, you also talk about how reading was just so incredibly important for you, how it was like one of the times when you sometimes didn't have to think about Trina or your siblings. Um, and then there's this moment where you write, you discovered reading, you discovered James Baldwin, and that you write, I loved that James Baldwin wasn't handsome. Mm-hmm. Why did you love that? Because I think that, I think, you know, I, as a child, I struggled so much with my own image and being beautiful. And, I, and you know, I, I've, I romanticized like all these other different people that I wanted to look like. So I think when I was able to read Baldwin and that he wasn't, you know, like I, like I talk about, he wasn't, he didn't look like Langston Hughes. I think I was kind of, it was freeing in a sense that I was like, oh, okay, you can, you don't have to be, you don't have to look a certain way for people to uh, listen to you or, or to pay attention to you. And I think that, I think it's such a superficial thing, but for me, it just felt more attainable to, to be a writer or, you know, to tell stories because, you know, the words were the things that connect to people, not how you, how people looked, you know, it's like, if you want to be an actor or something, I mean, how you are a model, like it's all based on your looks, but writing was, you know, it it didn't have a face. Like the words was, was your, was your face. And I think that is the thing that I just really admired and loved about um, James Baldwin. Yeah. Were you worried that the way you looked would stop people from from taking you seriously, from seeing your beauty? Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I had <laughs> I had horrible teeth. I mean, <laughs> I didn't have like the best clothes. And I just, I just, I never thought I was beautiful. I mean, not until, I mean, now as a, as an adult, of course, I, I don't struggle with all those, but I, I, I was never, you know, guys didn't like me when I was in middle school or elementary school, you know, I, I was just not desirable. I mean, I, I, I say I bloom like later on in life. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Janisha Watts and she is telling her story. More after the break, I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about what it means to reveal the traumas, the experiences we're used to hiding with Janisha Watts, a senior editor for The Atlantic, who has shared her story in the October issue called Janisha from Kentucky, online as I Never Called Her Mama, My Childhood in a Crack House. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Stories about if you've ever tried to hide your life story and why, what happened when you actually shared something that you were used to hiding, or whether Janisha's experiences just resonate with you. This listener tweets, thanks for sharing. I'm Native American, but passes white and grew up off the res in pretty hard conditions. I'm hearing echoes in your story. Let me go to Mary in El Cerrito next. Mary, thanks for calling. You're on. Hi. Um, I have a question for Janisha. Um, her story definitely resonates with me. Um, I grew up with um, a single mom who is, has a psychotic disorder um, and with, um, there, there were three of us all close two years apart, three girls and my mom in, in La Jolla, California, which is a like fancy tourist town. And always, always, always were hiding our life. Our house was a mess. Um, there were uh, gerbils and turtles running around the house. Um, just things, I mean, my mom would sleep during the day. Anyway, grew up hiding our house. So my question, though, and still, and still have hid my past. Like when I talk to people and I say, and they say, "Where are you from?" and I say, "La Jolla." It's like it's like a, it's like this. Oh, that's fancy. Okay, that's my yeah. ticket. Um, in college, my mom would call me with psychotic delusions, and my roommates would say, "Like that's not really that's not normal." That's when I started to figure it out. My sister and I are still working through it, and we still hide it. Um, but, but the question I have is, with my mom, she's still alive. She's just turned 89 in September. Like, how can I try to connect with her? We have never dealt with any of this. She's still psychotic. I want to connect with her somehow. My dad died I told him I loved my dad was not in the picture I met him when I was 18 basically and then I told him I loved him he didn't he didn't respond and he died so I just want to I want to connect with my mom somehow just given the whole situation just while we still have time Hmm. Mary thank you Janisha I don't know if you have any thoughts for Mary but but thank you Mary for sharing this story too I just so appreciate our listeners um feeling and giving so much of themselves. <clears throat> I think the only, I guess the thing I would say to Mary is is that I th- with that, with your mom, I think you have to perhaps just accept the reality of what it is and just go visit her and talk to her just when you can. I think that's the best way. I think you, like, sometimes you don't, like, you're never going to, you may never get the why or the how, and I think you just have to accept it. But just trying to just, you know, just talking to her and just telling her how you feel. Well, Martine on Discord writes, Bertrand Cooper's piece in Current Affairs in the summer of 2021 brought to the forefront the huge opportunity gaps between black people with class and educational privilege and those born into poverty, in particular in pop culture and creative fields where lives depicted might be those in poverty, but the creators most frequently are not. Is this question about representation, about who tells stories about black people living in poverty, one that you have also found problematic? 
What do you think of Martine's question, Janisha? Is about... um, Just about how the people who tell the stories about black people in poverty often mm -hmm. happen to be black people with class and educational privilege. Mm -hmm. And if you find that problematic as well. I have to think more about that. That's a good question. I, I have to think more yeah about it because i think i mean I, I i think it's like with anything if you like we are in the business of telling stories so for example i'm if i'm a journalist and i'm you know i'm writing about addiction and i've never been addicted but you know it's my profession so i think it's i think it's a little complicated i, I think i would have to think more about it but yeah. i think if you i think if the people are you know educated in um educated on the topic I think you know they would have they should have the you know the opportunity or the right to kind of report on it, but it's something I have to think more about. What made you finally ready? Like, when did you start feeling like you were ready or needed to tell your story, Janisha? I think the biggest thing for me is after I had my son, and oh. then when I uh, when I was pregnant. And I was meditating on, you know, when I was going through therapy and I was thinking of all these different and all these different emotions about um, how I felt about Trina, about my mom was just bubbling up. And I think that, you know, I I wanted to I've always known the type of mom, mother I wanted to be, but I felt like I had to, you know, get rid of some of that baggage, get rid of some of the um, the anger that I carried and I think I mean that was probably the biggest thing is just me closing that chapter of of you know not being a single mom like not being single but just being a mom and having to take care of someone else so I was just like you know I I no longer I felt like I no longer could just be mad at, at, at Trina because now I had my son to take care of I had my son to protect so I think yeah, becoming a mother was probably the turning point. Was there a sense of like, I know <laughs> when I became a mom, it was a bit of a turning point for me where some of the ways where things felt lacking just really came into stark relief. I think because there was just this part of me that, you know, would do absolutely anything, right, mm-hmm. to protect your yeah. child. Mm-hmm. Um, I am struck by the fact that you mentioned earlier that Trina wanted you to share your story. I think she said something along the lines of like, the truth will set you free, that truth is the light of the world. And I do wonder if you feel like she's right. Do you feel freer as a result? I think right now it's too early to say I feel freer because I'm still dealing with the the blowback from family members and people are still processing a lot of stuff that they're reading. But I do feel I am, I I wouldn't say freer. I think I'm just, I feel I'm more grateful. And and, And what I mean by that, I'm grateful because of her... Trina's openness and willingness to, you know, just allow me to just tell the story without holding back. And I think that has, in a lot of ways, 
helped. I guess make me feel lighter, if, if that makes sense. But I think mostly for, for, for like at this moment, it's just more of gratitude and also the gratitude of just being able to, you know, just meditate on the on, on my life and mm-hmm. being able to say, wow, like, you know, I came out of it and, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I, of course I still have issues. Of course, I'm still insecure about a lot of things, but I'm just like, wow, like, you know, and that. I think that's the thing that kind of um, frees me up and just makes yeah. me feel grateful because, you know, I, I could it could go it could have went a, a completely different way and it didn't. One of the ways you wrestled with writing about this is you asked yourself if you were pimping your trauma. What what did you mean by pimping your trauma? Yeah, because I think I didn't want. I mean, it 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 is a very horrific type of kind of story if you if you you know if, if I'm out of the story and I didn't want to write I mean I, I didn't want to write about all the the dark parts I didn't want to write about the um the rape I didn't want to write about the um complexities of my grandmother um my siblings and you know my brother being a crack baby I, I really didn't but then I had to um I had to get I had to get out of myself and I said you know if I if I'm an editor and then I, you know, I push other, you know, I want other writers to do some of the same thing, then I have to turn the lens on me. And even like the part of like when I was 16 and having to go ju- to um, juvenile, I didn't want to tell that part, you know, and I, I, it was just a lot of parts in the essay that made me very uncomfortable, but I felt that I had to do it. And I felt like it was all connected, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't turn away. And I think that was the I think that was the hardest part, but it was also the part where I was just like, is this you know is this is this trauma porn like am I you know? But I had to have a reason why I, whatever I shared, I had to have a reason. It had to have a connection. It had to have a meaning. I could, I didn't want to just write it just for the sake of just writing it, if that makes any sense. It it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, let me go to Rochelle in Santa Clara. Rochelle, you're on. Hi, um, I just wanted to thank the speaker for sharing your story. I think um, it's difficult, obviously, um, but a lot of people are going to resonate with your story, and I do. Um, My mom wasn't um, addicted to drugs, but a lot of my family members were in my house, so there was a lot of shame. Like, I had friends that weren't allowed to come to my house because they knew about things, and my mom was a teenager, so she couldn't be around to raise me all the time. Um, My grandma raised me, so there are a lot of those similarities. And I know how hard it is to speak kind of against your mom and call her out for things when you love her and you know she loved you and she did the best she could. Mm -hmm. So I I imagine that's the same for you. Um, I just wanted to thank you for being so brave because uh, the more people speak up about these things, the more we can all heal from it together. Wow, thank you. Thank you, Rochelle. The listener writes, whenever I think of people who worry about what people will think of them, I say, look across the room, see that person. What do you see? Do you see where they grew up or anything about where they come from? Or do you see a tall person wearing a blue shirt? That's what people see 
when they see you present yourself the way you want to be seen and known. Erica writes, I'm a white person who had more advantages, yet Janisha's account of the cocktail experience feels all too familiar. We often bury this stuff, even from ourselves. I appreciate your bravery because it's beautiful and useful. Destigmatizing and simply illuminating the truth will help me, for one, be able to connect with myself better. Sending you so many thanks. I also find strength in Baldwin not being model gorgeous. It's affirming. (laughs) That's good. We're talking with Janisha Watts, a senior editor for The Atlantic, and I really encourage you to read her October cover story called Janisha from Kentucky, or you can find it online as I never called her mama my childhood in a crack house. This has been a very powerful conversation. It's a fundraising period for many public radio stations, including KQED. And my apologies for, we've had such incredible stories, but I probably should have warned folks that you may be hearing things that will be difficult to hear about sexual assault or abuse or other things like that. And uh, just appreciate you giving us a little grace. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Beth next in Walnut Creek. Beth, thank you for waiting. Go right ahead, Beth. Okay, thank you. Beth, are you there? Hello? Yeah. Hi, thank I you for here. waiting. <laughs> what would you like to yeah. share? Well, first of all, thank you for taking my call and uh, to both of you for uh, putting this show on, which I think is so important. Um, <clears throat> and the courage, Ms. Watts, that you have to tell your story and so many others today. Um, so, I come from, well, a white middle-class family, so I had a certain amount of privilege, Uh, but my father abused me both physically, emotionally, and sexually from a really, really early age. And um, because they were so involved in the synagogue that we belonged to, nobody there would have ever believed that there was anything going on in our household. Nobody in the entire community would have Um, but the safe place that I found was at school where my teachers um, may or may not have recognized that there was something going on but um, I'm old (laughs) I was born in 1955 things were a lot different then Um, but I just um, relished being at school because it was very very safe for me and I wanted to um, thank all of those who provide safe spaces mm. for those of us who are going through um, mysteriously difficult times. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention is that when I grew up, it was, you know, um, behave, children should be seen and not heard, do whatever your elders tell you to, uh, which was part of all the, you know, supporting all the abusive behavior. Now I'm so happy to say my grandkids are growing up in a time when they're learning, you know, nobody gets to touch your body in a way that you don't want. You should report it. If anybody um, does anything and tells you to keep a secret, that's um, an immediate clue that you should tell somebody that <clears throat> that you care about, um, that you feel is safe um, immediately, that there are no good secrets in situations like that. And the world has changed a lot. Um, obviously horrible things are still happening. There's a lot of child abuse and other forms of abuse going on. But um, I, for one, I'm, I'm so happy to see that there's a higher level of awareness and there's people like you, Ms. Watts, telling your story 
and you, Miss Kim, putting it on the radio, and um, all these brave people telling their story and um, shining a light on it is mm. what will help everybody in the end. So thank you. Oh well, Beth, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I I did want to ask you one last question, and that was about the illustration on the cover of the Atlantic. Um, what was your reaction to the cover, the portrait of you? Um, by Didier Viaudet, if I'm saying their name correctly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was stunned, but I'll tell you more of when I showed my son, who will be two in two months. I just pulled out the magazine and I said, who is that? And he said, Mama, Mama, <gasps> Mama. So I was just like, oh, okay. You know, like he, And now every time I'm like on my phone and I have, um, and the magazine com- cover comes up, he says, Mama, Mama. So I, I, I'm just... I'm overwhelmed. I'm just so grateful. <laughs> and I just, I, I was like floored when I saw the illustration. I just could not believe it. And it's just, it's even more surreal seeing it um, when I'm holding the magazine or when people send it to me or send, have photos of it. I'm just like, it, it's, I, I'm just like, oh my goodness. It's, it's just, it's, it's unreal. It's like an unreal experience, an out of body experience. But I think the most, the thing that warms my heart the most is that my son, you know he can he can hold the magazine and he knows that like you know as his mom and I, I I don't know it's just something about that that gets me. Wow, yeah, it it captured really something so essential. I guess to even have your your son who isn't too completely see you in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he yeah every I'm telling you every time it comes up on my phone if, and he happens to see my phone he says mama mama. I've had to take a video because I'm like, okay, I don't want to make sure I'm imagining this. But yeah, he says it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Janisha Watts, I I just cannot thank you enough for putting this story out there and and for coming on to talk about it with us. It really means a lot to us. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Janisha Watts is a senior editor for The Atlantic, and her piece is Janisha from Kentucky. And thank you, listeners, for sharing your stories and your reflections and your questions. You are the conversation, and we so appreciate having you on with us as well. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure— The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. 
even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.